0: Father, we pray that you would open our eyes uh, to behold wonderful things from your law as we look to the scriptures this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Um, Philippians chapter 1, and I'll read from verse 1, and then we'll go over to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons pause there now and we'll flip over to 1 Timothy 3, 1 Timothy 3, and I'll read from verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, So that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. We'll begin back in Philippians chapter 1. Last week, if you were here, you recall that uh, We began the book of Philippians, and I said that when you start any book study, it's really important to first and foremost understand why the book was written in the first place. And we discovered after looking at Acts chapter 16 that the letter of of the book of Philippians is simply one long thank you note as Paul expressed his grateful heart to those who had partnered with him in the gospel from Philippi. He was thrilled that these new believers had begun their faithfulness right from the start and they remained faithful to the very end. Now, along with that, when you study a book, it's real important to understand who the book was written by and who the book was written to. Uh, when you and I write, a, I know that there's a lot of young people here, you guys don't even know how to write a letter. It's a text or it's an email. But there was a time when you took out a pen and you took out a piece of paper And you actually wrote a letter to someone and you always started with who the letter was to first. Dear Rick, dear Tom, dear whatever. Uh, I know that now, uh, I don't know what what the new salutation is, but it certainly isn't that and how to end the letter is different as well. But in the first century, in the first century, letters were written. The person who wrote the letter was nearly always the very first line. So there's never a guess as to who it was from. This is true of all of Paul's epistles. We know immediately here in Philippians that Paul wrote the book and then his young protege Timothy is included in the writing. I'm going to wait until we get to chapter 3 to talk more about the Apostle Paul because in chapter 3 we have a wonderful biography of him and we're actually going to wait until next week to talk about Timothy because next week is Mother's Day and Timothy had a wonderful mother and a wonderful grandmother and we'll talk about the life of Timothy some next week. Today, I just want to begin with how Paul describes himself and how he describes Timothy. He writes, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now, the word servant in Greek is the word doulos, and it's really better translated as slaves. It means pertaining to a state of being completely controlled by someone or something. It means subservient to, and it's typically a lifetime enslavement. It's one who gives himself up to the will of another. It really has the idea of being devoted to another in in a complete disregard for your own interests. Paul's going to use this word again in chapter 2 when we get there when he talks about how Christ did not look out for his own interests but only the interests of others when he emptied himself and came in the form of a servant. See, when Jesus came into the world, he did come in as a slave. He was one who was only interested in doing the will of his heavenly father. So Paul and Timothy's life is not their own. As slaves of Christ, they're acknowledging that God leads, God rules, God reigns, and and the words of Christ in Gethsemane really ring loud and clear. It's not my will, but thine be done. So, they're controlled by God, subservient to His will. They have a disregard for their own interest. They're resting in His direction and His guidance and His plans and His purposes. Now, at first glance, that may not seem like a very significant point until you understand where Paul is when he's writing this letter. When you understand where he is, the word slaves of Christ go up to a whole new level. We know that when Paul wrote this letter, he wasn't sitting in his study. He wasn't in the comfort of his living room. And he certainly wasn't sipping some iced tea on the back porch. No. Let's look at verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul is writing the book of Philippians from prison. It's one of the four letters that we're commonly called the prison epistles. Colossians, Ephesians, uh, Philippians, and, and Philemon are all written while Paul was in chains. And as he states here in the verses I read, in the middle of the difficulty... God had not forgotten him. His arrest had actually proved to advance the gospel. Now, now, quite honestly, you have to look at that and say, that is totally ridiculous. How can you arrest the best evangelist, the best church planter, the best preacher, the most prolific theologian? God, how can you take him out of play How can you remove him from being such a blessing for so many that so many depend upon? How can you do that and and still advance the gospel? That doesn't happen in normal life. Uh, when When you take out the NFL's leading rusher, you don't win the second half. When you lose the leading scorer in the NBA to an injury, then you collapse. You don't advance. You lose. But... God's ways aren't our ways, are they? Paul's in prison, but there's more fruit and not less. And part of the reason was that when Paul was in prison, others stepped forward with greater faith and greater faithfulness. See, when Paul was in prison, instead of depending upon him on the one, the many, the church, the family, the body, the building, those in Christ's kingdom began serving more actively and began serving more faithfully, which caused the good news about Christ to go forward in a greater way than it did when he was not in prison. I mean, I'm sure you saw that in the text. It's loud and clear, isn't it? God used Paul's absence and his difficulty in at least two ways. One, back in the text, his imprisonment, circulated through the imperial guard in Caesar's household. So his ministry broadened, and those who had not heard the gospel now heard the gospel. And if you doubt that, turn over to chapter 4. Turn over to chapter 4 and just look at the last couple of verses. Chapter 4, verse 21. Paul is, as he always does at the end of the letter, greeting everybody he knows and saying hello to everyone, saying hi to so-and-so, hi to so-and-so. And look at verse 21 of chapter 4. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now, now isn't that amazing? Uh, We saw last week that God sent Paul to a Philippian prison for only one night so that a jailer and his family can come to saving faith. And here Paul again is sent away for the gospel to go where he'd never been, right to the palace. His being taken away proved to be fruitful because now some in Caesar's household are actually born-again believers. But along with that, verse 14 says, back in chapter 1, that his absence and his difficulty created... In most of the brothers, a greater confidence in the Lord, so they became more bold to speak the word of God without fear. Now, doesn't that bring us back to the four metaphors uh, that we saw from Scripture when we looked at the church over the last several weeks? Because you're a body with various parts, you're a family of brothers and sisters in Christ, you're stones in a building, you're citizens in a kingdom, and in this case, When Paul is sidelined in prison, the church continued to be strengthened because those in the body stepped forward with greater confidence and greater boldness and greater faith and greater service. Because God builds his church. Because the church is not made up of the one, but the many with Christ as the head. And there are times when the removal or absence of an individual opens all manner of doors for others to serve, and it strengthens others. And the gospel is advanced in a far, far greater way when more people are active using all of their gifts. You see, Christ is the head of the church, and he builds it his way, doesn't he? So Paul does not describe himself as a servant of the church. He describes himself as a servant of Christ Jesus. And Jesus, as the head, moves his servants where they're needed to accomplish his purposes for his own glory. And Paul's imprisonment advanced the gospel. Who who ever thought that's even possible? Now, beloved, if you're a believing Christian, then you, too, are a slave of Christ Jesus. And we must be reminded of the fact that he is our master, and he is our Lord, and we are subservient to him, and he controls us. And we can trust him because he's good, and he's kind, and he's gracious, and he's loving. And all of his providential workings in all of our lives, whether the difficulties of imprisonment or job loss or illness or losing loved ones, Or the blessings of provision and creature comforts and family and friendship. All of these, all of these, good and bad, are designed with his good eternal purposes in mind as he advances the gospel for his his own glory. It took Paul's imprisonment to encourage others in the body to serve more faithfully. And in the process, the gospel continues to go forward and the church, Christ's church, is actually strengthened. So he begins by describing him and Timothy as slaves of Christ Jesus, who are the authors of this letter. And then he tells us who the letter was written to. We already looked at the city of Philippi last week, but notice the letter is written to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. Now, we've seen the word saint before, but it's always good to look at it again. Now, believe it or not, if you're a born-again believer, if you're a Christian, then you actually are a saint, if you've trusted in Christ's atoning death to pay for your sins, if you've repented of your sin and you've been justified by faith, or in other words, you've been counted righteous because you believe that through faith in Christ's death and resurrection alone that his righteousness is credited to your account and therefore you've been forgiven and reconciled to God. If you've truly trusted Christ. Then you too are, are you're a saint. If you're a Christian, you're a saint. You, you, you're, if you're a Christian, if your wife, if your husband or wife is a believer, then you are married to a saint. <laughs> your children, if they're believers, are saints. The person sitting next to you, if he trusts Christ to save him, the person sitting next to you is actually a saint. Even if there's times when your behavior doesn't reflect you sainthood, you're still saints because you're saints by calling. The word does mean holy, but holy does not mean perfect. And it's not performance-based holiness. According to Vine's Dictionary, it's an attainment. It's not an attainment. It's a state into which God, in his grace, calls men or women. The basic idea of a saint is someone who is different, or consecrated or set apart. Now we'll see in Philippians when we come to verse 6 in the weeks ahead that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Some translations say that he will perfect you until the day of Christ Jesus. What that means is that the day we become believing Christians we're called saints and though we're not perfect until we see Christ face to face He's continuing to work in our lives to make us perfect, to sanctify us, to grow us, and to conform us into the image of Christ. So we're called saints, we're being molded into saints, and we'll finally be perfect saints when we're glorified in heaven. When Paul goes on to say that the letter is written to saints in Christ Jesus, he's really expressing why we're different, why we're set apart. It's because we are in Christ Jesus. When you're in Christ, you are, in fact, set apart from the world. You're different from the world. Remember, when you were born, you were born outside of Christ, alienated from God, hostile toward God. You were born as an enemy of God. And it wasn't until you repented and trusted Christ to save you that you're no longer outside of Christ, But you're now in Christ. And if you're in Christ, then everything about you is different. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We saw this last week when we saw the establishment of the church in Philippi. that, That one of the saints I'm sure that Paul's referring to here is Lydia who, because of her new position in Christ, immediately opened her home to Paul and his comrades. Another of those saints surely was the Philippian jailer, who, when he became a believing Christian and he was in Christ, his behavior changed immediately, and he served Paul and Silas by cleansing their wounds and bringing them into their home. See, if you're in Christ... And he is in you, your heart has been transformed, and you've been regenerated, and you've been changed from the inside out. It'll be reflected in how you think, in how you act, what your goals are, how you live, what you watch, how you talk. If you're in him and he's in you, then you're actually a vessel. You're you're a conduit for him to live his life. Through you, One commentator wrote that when Paul spoke of being in Christ, he meant that the Christian lives in Christ like a bird in the air, like a fish in the water, the roots of a tree in the soil, and as John 15 states, a branch in the vine. He says what makes a Christian different is that he is always and everywhere conscious of the encircling presence of of Jesus Christ that's a great statement are you always and everywhere conscious of the encircling presence of Jesus Christ see if you're a Christian and he lives in you and you live in him you know for some of us old-timers the old Sunday school song we used to sing um, be careful little eyes what you see be careful little eyes what you see why because the Father up above is looking down with love, so be careful, little eyes, what you see. I I don't think that is theologically accurate. It's because if you're a believing Christian, the Father's not outside of you looking at you. He's actually inside of you looking with you. That's a game changer. He is inside of you Looking with you. So everything you see, he sees. Everything you touch, he touches. Everything you say, he said. So when you lie, he lies. Where you go, he goes. See, since you're in Christ and he's in you, you're joined with him and he's joined with you. Is he pleased with where you're taking him? Or... Are there some areas in your life that you need to die to and give up and repent of? Thank God for the conviction of the Holy Spirit that God uses to conform us and to perfect us and mold us into the image of his son. Thank God that when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Saints in Christ, as God works in and through us, is who this letter is written to And then notice that Paul is directing the letter, not just to the saints in Philippi, not just believers in the pew. Let me read verse 2 again. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Now we read from 1 Timothy 3 earlier because the word overseer and deacon here are the same words used in the offices Paul describes in 1 Timothy 3. They're exact same words for elder and deacon overseer and deacon God has provided in the church the office of overseer or elder and the office and, and the office of deacon for order for structure oversight and leadership in the church and quite honestly though these offices are clearly presented in scripture not every con- congregation follows this particular biblical pattern I heard Alistair Begg uh, in a sermon once talk about how he was actually visiting a church. He doesn't find that very often, but he must have been on vacation. And the pastor was preaching through 1 Timothy, and he actually got to chapter 3. And, and, and I don't think that he would have been able to tell the story if he wasn't there. He said, when the pastor read from 1 Tim, Timothy 3 and started reading verse 1 about the qualifications of elders, he paused and he said, and I quote, uh, well, we don't have any elders in this church, and we don't believe in elders, so let's move on to verse 8. That is not expository preaching. No. <laughs> and had he st- camped a little longer in verse 1 through 7, maybe he would have changed his mind. I don't want to go on a rabbit trail here uh, and do any lengthy st- study on these offices. But it might be helpful if we could summarize their roles if you turn to Acts 6. Turn to Acts 6. When you're reading through the book of Acts, the early church is, is growing. It's established. And as it grew, needs arise, and there needed to be a way to meet those needs. But the needs needed to be met so that those who are preaching and teaching could continue to preach and teach and not stop the gospel from going forward. I'm going to read from verse 1 of Acts 6. Now, in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews What they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procreus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Pyramidus, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and lay hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, now clearly, the word deacon is not in this text, and neither is the word elder, but this clearly helps us define the roles for these two offices, kind of in its fledgling state. There's some physical needs in the church that were not being met. The apostles who were doing the preaching and teaching were also the church leaders, and they knew that if they stopped to help meet the physical needs, they wouldn't be able to continue to preach and pray. This is what they're saying at the end of verse 3. It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. It's not that they weren't willing to serve tables. They were servants. But they knew that for them and their calling and the greater good it was for them to continue the task. Now again, this is apostles, but it does apply to the office of elder. Well, what's the solution? The church put names before the apostles. And the purpose of these men would be to meet the physical needs of the congregation so that according to verse 4 the apostles could devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word now according to verse 5 everybody thought that was a great idea they presented seven men before the apostles and the apostles were the one who had the final approval of who these men were which is indicated by they being the ones that prayed over them and laid hands on them so the congregations involved they have a lot of input but the overseers have the final confirmation. And what you see here in the beginning of of Acts 6 is these two roles of overseer and deacon. Deacon, the word deacon actually means servant. They serve the body of Christ so that elders or overseers can keep their nose in the Bible and their knees on the ground and continue to, to preach the word of God and to pray. Now let's finally turn to 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3. We, we read this earlier in the service for two reasons. One, it's mentioned in the book of Philippians, so we want to at least make mention of it as well. And secondly, we're putting before you today two individuals who we desire to fill these offices. We're going to be putting Jason Hunt before you as an elder and Jeremy Cuddy before you as a deacon, and we'll do that today after the Lord's Supper, which we're pra- praising God for. Now, these offices are not superior, inferior. The elders are not the varsity and the deacons are the JV. The elders are not the A team and the deacons are the B team. It has nothing to do with it. These are both offices that have equal value but different roles, both vital to the health of the body of Christ. In general, deacons meet the physical needs of the congregation and the elders serve the spiritual needs of the congregation. Again, the word deacon means servant, and the word elder means overseer. Now, it's been a couple of years, but we've already done an in-depth study about these particular offices, and we're not going to go down that path again. We want to do what we can to stay in Philippians. But let me just say a couple things about these qualifications. The focus here is not on what a man does, and it's not even what a man knows. The focus here is on what he is. And if you attempted to put these qualifications in categories, you might be able to say that a man's personal life and his marriage and his way he's raised his children or his parenting and his reputation with others are all critical to his role and, and his qualifications as an elder or a deacon. You could take all those qualities and you could pretty much subdivide them under those four categories, and I think it would work nicely. The main difference between the two is that elders are to be able to teach and deacons do not have to be able to teach. They can. There's some deacons who are gifted teachers. We thank God for that. But an elder must be able to teach God's word. Now, what do we mean by that? Uh, you're in 1 Timothy 3, turn over to chapter 5. I'm just going to read verse 17. 1 Timothy 5, 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. The first thing this means is that there's not to be a singular elder. The word is plural. There's not just one elder, there should be a plurality of elders. One of the worst models in church polity is a pastor-led church where the people look at the pastor like Moses or Joshua bringing them into the promised land. If you find yourself in that church, turn around and don't even sing the first song. Just exit out the door because you don't want to be there by any stretch of the imagination. No, a church needs a plurality of elders ruling and leading and shepherding, and they have equal authority. But notice that Paul makes a distinction between those who rule and those who teach. He states "Let the elders who rule well... Be considered worthy of double honor. This is what we commonly call a ruling elder or a lay elder. And then he states, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And then he goes on to say that the one who's laboring at preaching and teaching should be paid in verse 18. The scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when he treads out grain, the grain, and a laborer is, is, deserves his wages. Now, what we gather from this is that there are elders like me who get a paycheck to preach and teach. And there are lay elders like Brad and Lord William Jason who rule well, but do not regularly labor at preaching and teaching and that they're ruling elders. They're unpaid and yet have all the equal authority as they lead God's people. It's not unusual for the pastor to be A leader among leaders, but all the elders have the same authority in leading and decision making and they come to unity and consensus. And all of this is vital to the body of Christ. A lay elder or a ruling elder is not going to take on the consistent role of pulpit teaching, but they should be able to teach. They should be able to explain doctrine. They should be able to answer questions about the Bible to individuals or in a small group bible study they need to be knowledgeable in the faith and able to help those and teach those who might be asking questions when you have ruling elders and when you have a preaching elder the work of the ministry is a shared responsibility and with the help of the deacons tending to the physical needs of the body the church can flourish Now, some of my ask, well, what about us? We have trustees. Where do the trustees fit in? Well, to be honest with you, our trustees, from my perspective, are more like deacons, but they just don't like the title. They're they're, they're not mentioned in scripture. Uh, They don't have an official office. uh, But in our church, they're a huge blessing. And we're so thankful for all they do. Don, Irvin, Frank serve faithfully, and we're grateful for that. Now, because it's a plurality and a shared responsibility that has Christ as the head and the Bible at the forefront, then the church is never built on a singular person. The church is built on Christ, the cornerstone and the foundation of the apostolic record, which is contained in this book. Now, as we go back to Philippians chapter 1, I want to be really honest here there's a lot of commentaries who just seemed to bypass, from my perspective, something very significant. Nobody seems to talk about this particular salutation. It's the only time when Paul ever mentions overseers and deacons in his introduction. And the question, really, I ask myself is, why? Because when he wrote to the Ephesians, he said, uh, he just said, uh, letter to the saints. Colossians, he said, to the saints and faithful brothers, To Galatia, he said it was to the churches in Galatia. When he wrote Romans, he said to those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. So why in this letter to this church in this town did he say saints who are at Philippi with overseers and deacons? Now, here here are my possible reasons. Number one, it could be the elders and the deacons felt they were above the congregation it could be they didn't think they really needed what paul was saying that they maybe have arrived that maybe it applied to the congregation and not to them so so paul was reining them in saying that hey this letter of instruction is for the congregation and it's for you not just for those in the pew maybe secondly it could be could be The congregation did not fully respect the officers in the church and Paul was making a clear distinction to them that though we're all saints there are some who are called as officers and they need to be listened to and noticed or thirdly it could be there was such a lack of order in the church that Paul's mentioning the leaders to simply establish some sort of credibility but, but, but I think that the little word with helps in our understanding of this. It says the saints who are with the elders and deacons. See, they're not below. Uh, they're not above. They're not under. They're with them. And what that means is that we really are a body that is truly connected to one another. We're all saints or called out ones, but as called out ones, there are some who are deacons who serve some of the physical needs of the congregation. There are some who are elders who spend more time ministering the word and praying and preaching and teaching because they're responsible for the souls of those who are in their care. Yet we're all co-heirs. So the elders and deacons do not lord over the flock. They don't dominate the flock. ...or own the church family, they're just with them. And all the saints that are in Christ are to be in the care of the overseers and deacons... ...of the local church they're members of. So we're all together, sitting and listening to God's word being read and preached... ...and growing together and learning together and advancing the gospel together. Just two verses, very rich in application... And I'm going to close with just two applications. First, slaves of Christ. Paul's writing from prison because God in his sovereign providence put them there. So those in the palace can hear about Jesus. And so those in the church can grow and become more faithful and use their gifts and become more bold. And the work of the ministry, the gospel advances it reminds me of uh, the children's song that Dave Wright shared with us. That Every time he picks up his granddaughter at, at school, she comes into the car and wants to hear one song in particular. She finds it on her phone, and it's that song that God is so big and so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. The mountains are his. The rivers are his. The stars in the sky are his, too. He made the trees. He made the seas. He made the elephant too. And my God is so big and so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. In that last phrase, for you and you and you. You see, he rules the nations. He rules the world. He rules all creation. He rules the church. He rules you, a good and gracious God, using difficult providences for his glory. See, only slaves of Christ can see that. Must bow before him and say, not my will, but yours. And then secondly, saints with overseers and deacons. God is still calling sinners into his kingdom. God is still opening the hearts of people like Lydia and like the jailer to understand the gospel and making them saints who do not have a righteousness of their own, but rest in the righteousness of Christ. And some of those saints are called to be deacons, and some are called to be elders. And they are one with one another. Elders praying and ministering the word, and deacons serving where needed. And the saints together advancing the gospel for his glory. Oh God, may we follow what Paul prescribes here and be useful servants for your glory. Let's bow and pray. Father, how thankful we are that you work in all the various details of our lives in ways that we don't fully comprehend or understand for your glory. And Father, as as we look to you even now for continued guidance, direction, and wisdom in our own personal lives, Lord, we just pray that you would continue to work in a great way. Father, we're thankful that you indeed have brought us into your family and we are called saints. We don't feel very saintly most of the time. We thank you that you're continuing to perfect us until the day of Christ Jesus. So one day when we see you face to face, we will be perfect and how grateful we are for that. And Father, we thank you as well for those that you are in fact calling to church leadership, calling to be elders and deacons. Lord, continue the work of the ministry. And Father, I pray that as you do that here at Grace Fellowship, that it would just continue to go on in such a powerful way that the gospel would be advanced over and over and over and over again. And Lord, we bring these things before you, trusting you to do that. In Christ's name we pray.